If you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 2, the title of today's message is The Characteristics of a True Christian. What is it that makes something seem so genuine, yet it's nothing more than a counterfeit? From a product standpoint, maybe it's the name. Listen to some of these impressive names for knockoff brands. Anybody ever used a Skirple before? It's actually a, a knockoff for a Sharpie. I love this one personally. How about Arm and Hatchet baking soda? Literally, the, the pitcher has a hand, just like the arm and hammer, and it has a hatchet in it, not a hammer. Or maybe some of you are in the mood for some cream betweens. It's a knockoff for Oreos. <laughs> some of you are probably, even now, buying some Christmas gifts, and you could potentially hit the jackpot of savings with a brand new poly station instead of a PlayStation. There's a, an establishment in Coney Island, New York, that tried to take advantage of brand, but obviously there's certain trademarks that they could not violate, so they named their establishment the 11-7 Mart. And last but not least, maybe it's all about your favorite soda. Nothing like an ice-cold Dr. Perfect <laughs> or Mountain Frost. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh as I was thinking of this illustration. All kidding aside, my guess is that some of these products taste and look and feel like the genuine. However, at the end of the day, they're knockoffs. They're not the real thing. Now, I know what some of you are maybe saying, because I said the same thing as I was thinking through this. Sometimes the knockoffs are just as good as the original. Myself, I'm partial to generic oatmeal cream pies over the Little Debbie's. I know, maybe that's not... Uh, appropriate to say, but <laughs> nevertheless, when it comes to people, this discussion is no longer fun and games. Imposters are dangerous, and if left unexposed, unexposed can be extremely harmful. That said, how much more important is this discussion when it comes to the state of someone's soul? How much more important is this concerning the bride of Christ, the church, and protecting it from potential false converts? There's no room for bot knockoffs in the body of Christ. Jesus said, he who loses his life 
loses his life will find it. He said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, after he asked him, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He told him to sell everything and come and follow me. Salvation is by grace and faith alone. Yet, true saving faith certainly produces works that reflect a new creation. The late 18th century English pastor Charles Simeon desired to accomplish at least one of three elements in all of his preaching. Number one was to exalt the Savior. Number two was to humble sinners. And number three was to promote holiness. I can tell you that by God's grace, we will accomplish all three of those here today. For my believing friends, this message will indeed serve to magnify Christ while promoting holiness. And if perhaps there's one here who needs to be humbled, I pray that by God's grace, this message would serve that purpose. The theme of this passage of chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, is simply true knowledge of Christ produces a lifestyle motivated by love. True knowledge of Christ produces a lifestyle that is motivated by love. That is the meaning of this passage. With that overall meaning understood, we'll answer the question that falls right in line with the title of our message, What are the characteristics of a true Christian? That said, would you stand with me, please, as we read our passage for this morning. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, God's authoritative and inspired word. By this, we know that we have come to know him, If we keep his commandments, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected by this. We know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You may be seated.
our first characteristic of a true Christian is number one, knowledge of him. Look with me at the beginning of verse three. By this, we know that we have come to know him. Now we'll get to this by this and the answer that flows out of that. Notwithstanding, we can't divorce the preceding context from this knowledge of him that we've looked at and explored previously that John has already even written about in the beginning of this letter. A true Christian will have a proper belief. Some of you may recall we identified that as one of the primary themes to this letter as a whole in our introductory message to 1 John. Regarding that knowledge of him, we looked at several elements in John's preceding context. The reality that Christ is the eternal God. He was from the beginning. It's in that understanding as we grow and come to a realization of his deity, that Christ is God, that we fully come to understand and embrace that we can be made right with God because he is God. Our reconciliation, our redemption, our freedom from sin is possible because he is God. Or that Christ is the incarnate one. That he is 100% fully God, but yet he is also 100% fully man. He came and lived as a human being, as God in the flesh. He's capable of being our merciful and faithful high priest. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. He is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice because of his human nature in conjunction with his divine nature. Or that God is light. This understanding that because he is perfection, because he is truth, we are able to see in greater light our darkness and our need for his perfection and his truth. And then finally, as we looked at last week, that Christ is our perfect advocate our perfect comforter, our perfect mediator. And then don't forget, he is our perfect judge as well. And because of the price that he paid, considers us, those of us that are in Christ, true Christians, as redeemed, as reconciled, as free from the curse of sin. It's this understanding of his perfect role which opens the door to a world of assurance and victory. An understanding, as we talked about in detail last week, that the wrath of God that abides on all mankind has been removed because of his propitiation that he made, that word defined as a removal of wrath that we all deserve. Now, of course, the level of our understanding certainly grows as we walk in the light and we'll look more 
at that in our third characteristic, and that said, at least on a basic level, these concepts of knowledge of him are fundamental in truly knowing Christ. That said, at least on a basic level, these concepts are fully articulated and we understand them when we come to knowledge of Christ, that Christ is God and man, that he is perfect and true, that all men fall short of the glory of God and live in darkness apart from the grace of God. But yet, when we come to know him through repentance, we come to this understanding that we have been delivered from the punishment that we deserve. So, that's a surface knowledge of him. Let's unpack a little more with the meaning of this verb, to know. It's precious and sweet and clearly communicates what a true Christian understands. Imagine if you were only ever connected with people on an intellectual level. Never having the opportunity to truly experience true love and true friendship and true biblical fellowship. Remember, we've defined this term fellowship several times now. And the word that is so key for us in understanding that term is intimate. Intimate is so much more than just on an intellectual level. And this verb, to know, in the Greek language, not only communicates an intellectual understanding, but one of an intimate relationship. Those of us that are in Christ, this is, this is why we often utter the words that Christianity is more than a religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, whether it was the churches of Asia Minor or us here today, true believers find this intimate relationship through the Word of God. A word, as Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, cuts down deep and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The psalmist in 119.76 said, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word, to your word, to your servant. In that same Psalm 119, verse 11, the psalmist goes on to say that he, might, he desired to hide the word in his heart in order that he might not sin against the Lord. This is relational. This is intimate in its communication, not just on an intellectual level. But whether it was the Old Testament and the psalmist or Hebrews 4 and the church age, true knowledge of God has always been proper, intimate, and relational. Likewise, let's not forget one of John's primary concerns in writing this letter. But that was to assure the true believers of their faith in Christ. Intimate relationship is key in producing assurance. Think of the intimate relationships that you even have on a human perspective. These are relationships that you would never doubt that person and their desire to love you, to care for you, to be there for you. 
And on a much grander scale is our intimate relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what knowledge of him looks like for a true Christian. And our second characteristic, we'll see the first logical fruit from this knowledge. John called it by these in the beginning of verse 3 as he begins to identify several of these fruits. And that's number two, obedience. Obedience. We saw a beautiful picture of that even here this morning. In verses 3 through 6, John uses the word keep three times, as you can see in the text. Two times he says, keep his commandments. And then once he says, keep his word. All three of these verbs are in the present tense. We're all becoming familiar with what that communicates in the Greek language. This is clearly painting a picture of persistent obedience. Like a watchful commander on duty. The Christian, the true Christian, guards his commitment to obedience like a hawk. He can't help but do so. Moreover, you'll notice that John uses the plural of commandment here. And this, I believe, was intentional in order to draw the churches to a appreciation and concern for holiness on all levels. Throughout this section that we're in today and the book as a whole, love, of course, is the major focus. Look over, keep your hand in chapter 2, but look over at chapter 3, verse 23. He says, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. This is the theme, the central theme, the focal point But John desires to approach holiness on all levels. We know from the words of Jesus, the extent of application when it comes to love expands even greater. You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, we read, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, With all your mind, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The charge is becoming all-encompassing. What might this all-encompassing charge for obedience and love look like? Application-wise? Considering this plural of commandments? I'll offer a few examples for application. These are not exhaustive, but certainly non-negotiable for the true Christian. As we began our message, it has to start with a true and proper knowledge of who Christ is. One that involves an intimate relationship 
an intimate relationship that produces a passion and conviction, we might add, to commune with God in prayer. This is simple and basic for the true Christian. Not to mention a hunger to know him more through his word. This is how we come to a greater knowledge and understanding of who he is. The true Christian desires and wants to know him more through his word. A desire, we might add, to love others through regular fellowship, biblical fellowship, intimate relationships. We've hit upon this several times now. And then, of course, just to finish off, a commitment to make disciples, just to name a few. We could go on and on in what obedience looks like for the Christian. In the 1980s, a certain movement called Free Grace Theology began to take root. Unfortunately, in many respects, there are still some that either hold to this view or, out of ignorance, embrace it. This is the view that states that a person that comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, no matter what their life looks like, can rest in the assurance of their saving faith. Does not the Bible say that if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved? Yes, it does. And yes, that is 100% truth. However, this view that a life that claims to follow Christ but yet reflects nothing of a new creation Free grace theology opens a slippery slope for neglect of obedience on the smallest of scales, on the biggest of scales. It's just completely incorrect for what the Bible teaches as a whole. John has already blown this idea out of the water in the passages that we've looked at previously. He will continue to do so throughout this book, but even in our passage today, look at verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Listen, let me say it again because it's sweet as can be for each and every one of us. Salvation is by grace and faith alone. Amen. No amount of works could ever justify us before a holy God. And to believe so would be a different gospel, i.e. Roman Catholicism. However, Scripture is crystal clear that works flow forth from a true saving faith. What's more? John is going to go on to say that for the Christian, these works are not burdensome either. Keep your hand again in chapter 2, but turn over to chapter 5. 
chapter 5, verse 3. And John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Beloved, take heart. This has nothing to do with perfection. We all feel the weight of falling short each and every day. That said, though, the true Christian life reflects the practice of obedience. And it is not burdensome for him. For the Christian, the practice of life does not find it burdensome to fellowship with believers. Does not find it burdensome to pray. Does not find it burdensome to read God's word. Does not find it burdensome to share Christ with others. So, for my believing friends here today, with this lack of burden that we all fully realize, spur us on to even more passion and conviction to keep His commandments, to keep His word. What is God perhaps even now directing you towards when it comes to obedience in His word? in His commandments. I pray even now that the Holy Spirit is convicting us according to His Word, according to His commandments. Furthermore, those of us that are in Christ, would we rest today as well? Yes, we pursue obedience with all of our heart, but would we rest Rest solely in Christ, in what he's doing on your behalf. Look at verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And this verse is fascinating in two respects. Number one, concerning that rest, realize that God is sovereignly bringing you to his perfect completion. The love of God is being perfected in you, those who keep his commandments. And as the verse states, by this we know that we are in him. Great assurance, great rest, great trust. And that what God has started, he will bring to completion. His love for you will truly perfect you. And one day you will realize that in total perfection and glory. Number two, realize your responsibility to keep his commandments. Whether it's through our love for God or God's love for us, he will create in us obedience and assurance. Not to mention, 
when we practice obedience according to our human responsibility, we find assurance and rest in that as well. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility on full display. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 9, Jesus stated it as such, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Without Christ first loving us, we would never be capable of abiding in his love. That said, though, because he first chose us, we can and we will abide in him. Look at verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. John is partial to this word abide. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he actually uses it 24 times throughout his writings. What's so encouraging about this word is the confidence that we find in its actual meaning. It actually pertains to remaining in or not leaving. How does that work? What does that look like for us? For the true Christian, I've stated it before, I'll state it again, nothing will stop him from practicing obedience. God's commandments are not burdensome to him. Hence, he will inevitably remain. He will not leave. He will abide in him and he will walk as Christ walked. Not perfectly. We all still wrestle and struggle with sin. But for the true Christian, his life will reflect a practice of abiding in him. What's more... Continuing to rest and find encouragement and conviction to move forward. Christ and the Father will abide with him. Listen to John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Great confidence, great Courage, great peace, great rest for the true Christian. What about the Holy Spirit as well? John in this letter in chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Strength. Conviction. To be more than a conqueror, to overcome by the grace of God. So, if knowledge of him is fundamental and obedience certainly seems to be the next step, what might come next? And our third characteristic, we'll continue to see the logical flow throughout this text. And that's number three. Sanctification. Sanctification. This word 
in essence, just pertaining to the pursuit of holiness, living a life of holiness. In verse 7, as you can see in the text, you'll see John speak of this information as an old commandment. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say such thing as a new commandment. There's a new one as well. What is he saying here? And let's deal with the old first. Since receiving Christ, these Christians would have certainly been familiar with one primary component of Christianity. In John 13, the Gospel of John, verses 34 and 35, we read, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When we come to saving knowledge of Christ by the grace of God, it does not take long for us to understand what in one sense could be labeled as an old commandment, that we are called to love one another. Not to mention there's another aspect of old It would have pertained to the Jewish believers in this original audience as well. In Leviticus 19.18, they would have fully been mindful of the charge to love thy neighbor as thyself. So, there's a sense in which true believers are not hearing anything new after they come to saving faith. This basic fundamental concept, this old commandment to love one another, to love your neighbor as yourself. However, is that it? Is there more to become aware of for the true Christian? Think of your individual walks with Christ. When you first came to saving faith, Maybe it was your baptism that followed subsequently. Your subsequent study of God's word over time. From the moment that you received Christ. Or maybe even through the trials of life that we've all been afflicted with. For the true Christian... You can look back and see the providential hand of God growing you, equipping you, and transforming you more into His image. That's exactly what happens when we come to know Christ more. To be sanctified by His Word. As John says in his gospel, chapter 17, to grow in holiness is to grow in our understanding of a deeper appreciation of Christ's self-sacrificial love. To understand that Christ made himself as nothing in that great Philippians chapter 2 passage. And he calls us to do the same. Or to grow in a greater quality of intimate love. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, 
He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Sanctification, growth throughout our walks with Christ. To know that in our sanctification, not only have we been called to love our neighbors, basic old concept, but also to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. What's more to know that in our sanctification, our darkened and stained soul of depravity is passing away. The verse states, the true light is already shining. This is a characteristic of a true Christian. Taking off the old, putting on the new, growing by the grace of God. The late R.C. Sproul Church lost a great one in him a couple years ago, pastored down St. Andrew's Chapel down in Florida, said the following concerning the pursuit of holiness. If you don't delight in the fact that your father is holy, 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 then you are spiritually dead. You may be in a church You may go to a Christian school, but if there is no delight in your soul for the holiness of God, you don't know God. You don't love God. You're out of touch with God. You're asleep to his character. For the majority of us here this morning, that quote, or better yet, these verses will drive us To pursue with more conviction holiness. That without which, as the writer of Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. For the sinner, apart from grace, as Charles Simeon would hope, let these words humble you to the foot of the cross. You will find a Savior who was good and merciful and faithful to redeem and to reconcile and to rescue an undeserved sinner. And our fourth and final characteristic, let's briefly deal with the action behind this knowledge And that's number four, love in action. Love in action. Now, we've mentioned this before concerning John. He doesn't always write in a sequential, logical flow. Here he does so again by, in verse 9, starting with the negative and then transition to the positive and then back to the negative in verse 11. Let's deal with the negative first in verses 9 and 11. 
In both of these verses, the same concept is being communicated. Simply put, the one who says he's in the light, yet practices hate towards his brother, is an imposter, is a knockoff, is an unbeliever who is walking in the darkness. He's blind. Notice I use the word practice again. All of these verbs, once again, are in the present tense. The man who walks with a masquerade of darkness is living a lifestyle of ongoing hatred towards his brother. Hatred is the opposite of love. It's anchored in what is selfishly motivated. Apart from the grace of God, even us as believers can remember a time where we lived in that darkness. A life that only because of the common grace of God endeavored to do anything good, albeit that endeavor in and of itself richly intertwined with nothing but a self-centered approach. However, because of the electing grace of God, true Christians have been called out of darkness. In verse 10, John adds specificity to the manner of walking for the true Christian that we saw from verse 6. Look at verse 10. He says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Once again, this is another verb pertaining to an ongoing action, yet this time it's the primary characteristic of a true Christian. This is the Greek word for love that pertains to a self-sacrificial love. Many of you are probably even familiar with it. It's become common usage or vernacular of words even in Christendom today, and that word is agape or agapao. Agape love, self-sacrificial love. We mention that type of love in Philippians chapter 2. The kind of love that is willing to set aside your own interests for the interests of others. To lay down our lives as Christ laid down his, metaphorically speaking, or perhaps even literally that's a self-sacrificial love. That's a love that perhaps will even lay down his life for his enemy, not just his neighbor. Is that not who you were, who I was, apart from the grace of God, but an enemy? One who continually pursued the lusts of the flesh, but yet as enemies, Christ died to redeem and set you free. 
As for the false convert, he walks like a blinded animal on a path towards a snare of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. However, for the true Christian, love and action causes him to abide in the light. Finish that, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That true Christian that walks in the light, abides in the light, he's guided by a light that comes from the word that is a lamp unto his feet. One which inevitably, as the verse states, gives him no cause for stumbling. And let me offer one final thought of application for love in action. All three of these previous characteristics, even for the Christian at times, can be simply intellectual in their capacity. Knowledge of him, obedience, or even sanctification at times can be only intellectual. We know what we've been called to do. We know who Christ is. We know and desire to grow in holiness. That said, love in action must be the ultimate means for our walks with Christ. What is our motivation behind all of these characteristics? Is it to get an attaboy? Is it to walk away because you feel as though I did what I'm supposed to do, I checked the box? We've talked about this before, but even in our fellowship here at Miriam Christian Chapel, do we come to get or do we come to give? Are we motivated by love and action? By God's grace, we will find love as what drives our knowledge of him, our obedience, our sanctification. Let that be your prayer. As we close, let us be mindful of these four characteristics again of a true Christian. Knowledge of him. Obedience. Sanctification. And then all of it undergirded by love in action. Christ being the perfect example for us in all of this. All of these will indeed serve to exalt the Savior, to humble the sinner, and to promote holiness. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, 
we come before you here today understanding and realizing that everything that is good in and of ourselves is only because of your grace. Lord, because of that reality, would you create in us a desire to be obedient, to know more of you, to pursue holiness with all of our hearts and souls, mind and strength. That in that obedience, in that sanctification, we would examine our hearts for a spirit of love. A love that is self-sacrificial. The love that sent you to the cross in order that we might have freedom from the sin that we wrestle and struggle and lived within. Lord God, if there is anyone under the sound of my voice even here today that has been humbled by what a true Christian means, Lord, would you demonstrate your love to them? Would you draw them by your grace in order that they might know the excellencies of this great God and King in whom we serve. Lord, we glorify you, we exalt you. In the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray.